This is the Road Trekking Podcast with your host, Jimmy James. It's a show about my trip from Ontario to British Columbia in a vintage 92 camper van. And I invite you to come along for the ride. Welcome to episode zero, Getting Ready. In this episode, I hope to detail some of my motivations and reasons for taking a trip across Canada and back in such an old vehicle, talk about some of the obstacles and repairs that I've had to make uh, and overcome in order to get this van to a point where I feel comfortable taking it on a trip like that, and also some of the modifications that I've made to try to make my life more comfortable. If you're not into the techie part of vehicles or you're not interested in uh, why I'm doing what I'm doing, feel free to skip this episode and go to the next one. Just know that this episode uh, is not the same as any of the other episodes, and it, it really is just focusing on what it is I had to do to prepare to get going. Without further ado, let's do the trip log. Current location, Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. GPS coordinates, um, I have no idea. Kilometers traveled, zero. Uh, maintenance costs incurred. Uh, <laughs> let's reset this to zero. I have no idea what I've spent so far. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to fix this van up. Um, all right, let's get into my motivations for doing this trip. I've always found the history of the peoples of Canada and the history of the nation itself to be uh, fascinating, all the way from the indigenous and first peoples that lived here to the times of colonialism, um, war with the United States, and uh, finally us gaining our own sovereignty from England. I find that fascinating. The other thing that I'm really interested in are the varying uh, landscapes in the country. I mean, you can go from the Atlantic provinces where in PEI, um, you know, you have beaches made out of red sand, uh, Newfoundland, a rock covered landscape, um, islands in the sea, uh, the great forests of Ontario, the plains, the prairies, uh, badlands, uh, vast forests in British Columbia and Pacific climate environments where it rains mostly and doesn't even snow. Um, in northern Canada, harsh winters that last the majority of the year. And in southern places like southern Ontario and southern British Columbia, very mild winters. Uh, climates that vary from subarctic and arctic to almost desert climates and uh, temperate climates. The country is literally so huge. It is the second largest country in terms of land uh, square footage in the world next to Russia. And I really want to experience Canada, at least um, from where I reside um, to the far west coast and back so that I can take a look at you know what this country is really comprised of. The other thing that I'm really interested in is what it means to be Canadian. And it sounds like a silly question because we'd say, well, we're Canadian citizens. But what it means to be Canadian is very different uh, from locale to locale, community to community. 
people that live in the far north and people that live in the south, east and west all have different viewpoints on what their Canadian experience is. And it's really our experiences in this country that make up what the country is, especially considering we have such a varying amount of cultures and peoples across this country. So I thought that it would be a good thing to take a drive uh, and really see firsthand um, what Canada is all about. Now, I've flown to various countries before in the past, uh, down south, and I've flown to the west coast, but uh, I've never driven that far. And I'm really curious to see what the experience is like uh, crossing this country and putting that many miles uh, behind me so that I can actually see and feel the, the, what the landscapes and what the people are really like uh, from a grassroots level. Um, in terms of my itinerary, I, I don't really have one. I know that um, there are basically two routes crossing the prairies. Um, one is the southern route, which branches off just west of Winnipeg and passes through Regina, Swift Current, and eventually Calgary, and uh, through Banff and the uh, Icefields Parkway. And there's also a northern route, um, which branches off in Winnipeg and travels through Saskatoon and Edmonton and sort of traverses the northern parts of the prairies. So I know that I want to take uh, a southern approach on one leg uh, to Vancouver, and I want to take a northern route on my way back so I can see what some of the differences are between the Southern Prairie experience and the Northern Prairie experience. In terms of accommodations and camping, of course, I'll be staying in the van, um, but I'm not really making any reservations in advance. These vans are extremely versatile in that you can boondock uh, on a deserted road, you can camp out in a casino or Walmart parking lot, or you can go to a traditional campground or find somebody who will allow you to stay them at uh, stay at their property. So that's what I'm planning on doing. Uh, I don't have any kind of fixed schedule. I don't have any kind of fixed itinerary. I just know that I want to try to stay off the beaten path. Um, you know, we can look in a Lonely Planet guide or type in any of these cities, big cities, Winnipeg, Edmonton, stuff like that on the internet. And, um, get a get a feel for what that city is about what i'm more interested in are the smaller communities uh, the communities that are less well known and seeing what life in those places is like i have been to some of the larger cities in canada and what I can tell you is that an urban experience is pretty much the same across the country. It's the rural experiences, the experiences in the small towns and the viewpoints of those people and what they do on a day-to-day -day basis that really interests me. It's also where you get to see some of the stuff that you wouldn't in the big cities. Of course, there are some interesting museums that I plan to visit, and I will have to go into some of the bigger towns to do that but I want to try to avoid just jumping from big city to big city and missing the, the smaller community experiences in between. I do hope to make it all the way to Vancouver and Vancouver Island. Check that out. And if I'm feeling that the van is ready and reliable enough, I'm even going to try to make it up to the Haida Gwaii, which was formerly known as the Queen Charlotte Islands, and scope that out before heading back along that northern route. 
Okay, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about the details and the history of this particular van. Uh, first of all, this is what's called a road trek conversion van. So what they would do is order a van. Uh, in this case, the van is a Dodge. And they would outfit it with everything that they thought you would need for camping. So in the case of this van, it has a bed in the back, a small flush toilet, a refrigerator that runs on uh, 12 volts. Well, to say that it runs on 12 volts is kind of an overstatement. It kind of gets cool on 12 volts and then it works properly when you're plugged into 120 or shore power, as they say, or propane. Uh, it has a small sink uh, with running water, no hot water, just cold water in the van, a microwave, um, and lots and lots of storage. The thing about this van, so it is a Dodge B350. So what that means is it's a one-ton van. But Dodge um, is not particularly well-known in these years for their reliability. Uh, they had transmission problems and a bunch of other problems uh, with their vehicles in these years. But overall, it is a decent vehicle. It has a 318 engine, or some people would call it a 5.2. It is the first year of the multi-port injection uh, technology, which might be problematic because it's been difficult to find parts for it. Um, it produces 235 horsepower, but it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like maybe it produces about 60 horsepower. That being said, the van is quite heavy. I think it comes in somewhere around 7,500 pounds. So it is a large, uh, heavy vehicle and it has a small motor, but from what I'm told, the 318 is a reliable engine and they basically run forever as long as you keep up the maintenance. That's the thing. Going to the history of this van, I don't really know what the maintenance history is. Um, it was an estate sale, so some of its history is shrouded uh, in mystery, but I'm going to tell you guys what I know. I know that it was owned by a man uh, who used to take it to Florida every year with his wife. And when his wife passed away about 10 years before he did, uh, he basically just parked the van and left it. He felt like it would be sacrilegious to take the van with, uh, you know, himself or his new girlfriend. So the van basically sat for 10 years and really to anything mechanical, um, sitting is death. Everything needs to run. Everything needs to be exercised. And in the case of this van, it I think he went out and started it every once in a while. But besides that, he didn't drive it around. He didn't use any of the systems. Um, so I've had a bit of a hard time as I go through it, finding parts are breaking as I'm driving it, as I'm using it and starting to do things. I'm discovering that uh, various things are just constantly breaking. There is another aspect to this that I want to talk about, and that's that I believe that things should be able to fulfill their destiny. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not the kind of person who gets emotional about material belongings. I, I mean, I've named my vehicles in the past, of course, but I'm not really sad to see them go when I get a new one. That being said, I think it's really important that if something is designed for a purpose, that it has the ability to fulfill that purpose. So I'll give you an example. When I was young, 
there was a man on my street and he had a car. Sometimes when his garage door was open, I could see there was a car under a tarp and uh, I had just recently gotten my license and I stopped in, the garage door was open. He was outside and I said, you know, excuse me, mister, uh, I'm just wondering what's under the tarp. So he pulled the tarp off and yet lo and behold, underneath was like a 1972 AMX, which for those of you who don't know, uh, it is a muscle car that was produced. It's, it's sort of unusual in that it was produced by the American Motors Company that's no longer in existence. And it was supposed to compete with the likes of the Camaro and the Mustang, but they had a really unique twist to them. And uh, I asked him, hey, you know, would you be interested in selling it? And he said, no, 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 I don't want to sell this, this car. I'm, I'm keeping it. So, okay, fair enough. And as I got older, first of all, you should know, I never saw him drive it. And as I got older, I would see the garage door open from time to time and the car was there. Uh, even at some point in time, years and years later, I had moved away, completed my university. I was living uh, in my own place. I took a drive through my old neighborhood and sure enough, the guy was outside cutting the grass and that car was still sitting underneath the tarp. And I just felt like it was such a shame because that car was meant to, to be cruising the streets, you know, to be getting looks, turning heads. And it just wasn't fulfilling its destiny sitting in somebody's garage. Much in the same way that while I'm sure the gentleman who owned this van um, felt that it was sacrilegious to use it without his, um, his former partner, this van was meant to be camped in. It was meant to have good times. It was meant for fun. It was meant for exploring. So that's what I intend to do with it. I'm going to use it uh, to its potential. I'm, I'm going to take it on those road trips that, that, it, that it wants to go on. Okay, now back to what I was saying about the mechanical stuff with the van. So I took the van on a number of drives, uh, short drives, medium drives, and uh, discovered that I was having some problems with it. The first thing I noticed was that the temperature gauge would never come above the cold mark. I thought perhaps the gauge is broken, I'm not sure. I used a heat gun to check the temperature and it was cold. It wasn't running at the temperature it should be, which tells me that probably the thermostat needs to, replace, to be replaced. Unfortunately, in, on this motor, to change the thermostat, you basically have to take apart the whole front of the engine. So uh, I did that. I replaced the thermostat. I replaced the hose. And sure enough, now I do actually show some temperature on the temperature gauge so the engine is able to come up to operating temperature. So that should help with fuel economy, although I doubt that the fuel economy is particularly good. Uh, I've been measuring it just on short drives and whatnot, and I'm getting somewhere in the neighborhood of 18, 19 liters per 100 kilometers. But hopefully that improves as I sort of shake the cobwebs out of the van and drive it around some more. The other thing that was a, a bit uh, frightening was that it had so much sway and wander on the highway. Uh, I looked on some of the Facebook groups and owners groups, and apparently this is a common problem with these vans. And it seems like the solution, number one, is to make sure that you have the appropriate amount of air pressure in your tires, which I did. 
And secondly, um, replace the shocks. So I put uh, really high quality Monroe shocks in the front. And I actually put what they call a load leveler shock in the rear because the rear looked a little saggy. Over time, the springs sort of sag down under the weight of the vehicle. So these load leveler shocks have springs on them and help to just take some of the load off the rear springs of the van. I did that, and that seems to have made it drive a lot better. Uh, it's improved the drivability, especially at highway speeds. Um, the cruise control did not work, and this is where I got into a whole quagmire. The cruise control in this van uh, is run off vacuum. And for those of you who don't know, vacuum is basically what it sounds like. It's the absence of pressure. In fact, it's a lower pressure than uh, what is present in the air around us. Engines generate vacuum um, on the intake side because they're sucking air in. And in these older vehicles, they used vacuum for everything. They used it for the cruise control module. They used it for um, dampers in the heating and, and vent system. Uh, they use it for turning heat on and off and various other things. This van has or had a vacuum problem. So I start looking under the hood and I just find these spaghetti mess of uh, these little vacuum tubes going everywhere. And some of them are cut. Some of them are just dangling. So I also noticed that when I would drive up a hill and the engine would downshift, the, 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 the vents would come like, instead of coming out of the vent, it would switch to the floor. Or it would switch to defrost. And it's like, what the heck is going on? So I found all these tubes. I tried to reconnect them. I replaced ones that looked cracked. And then the ones that I didn't know where they went to, I've basically plugged them. In doing that, I got the heater controls to work properly. So when I put it on heat or vent or whatever, it actually comes out the appropriate spot and it doesn't change. Um, the, that did not fix the cruise control though. And uh, with the help of the Haynes manual, I did some, actually it wasn't a Haynes manual. It was a uh, Dodge mechanic friend of mine who gave me a troubleshooting procedure for the cruise control module. And I discovered that the module had gone bad. So I headed to the junkyard and quickly uh, came to the realization that any vehicles of this year, and especially of this size, because the price on scrap metal is so high now, they basically just crunch them immediately and send them away. I did, however, find a Dodge truck of about the same years, which had a cruise control module that looked very, very similar. So I pulled that cruise control module off. I think I paid them 20 bucks for it, took it home, did the bench test on it, and it tested good. The only thing was that the plug that it uh, connected to the van with was, was different. So I luckily had taken the cut the plug out of the truck and I soldered a new plug in and um, connected it all up. And what do you know? The cruise control works now. So that's going to be excellent for crossing the prairies. Another thing I noticed was that when the van was cold or rather it was cold outside, um, I would get like strange clicking noises under the hood that the van, it, it wouldn't start immediately and I could hear relays clicking and they would start to click slow. And you know, when you start your car, how all the lights on the dash sort of come on as a test for, for a second or two, they wouldn't come on. But then when I heard this clicking, the lights would flash and then the flashing would get more rapid click, 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 click and then they would come on solid. And if I took the van for a drive, brought it home, turned it off, 
uh, turned it on again, no problem. Lights would come on, the van would start. I also noticed that um, on a cold morning, it took longer for all this clicking and everything to go before the van would start. And on a warm morning, um, that little process would be much quicker. I noticed that the clicking was coming from various relays under the hood and it was affecting lights on the dash. So I thought maybe it's the computer. I tried to do some searching online, couldn't find anybody with a similar problem, but I thought, you know, maybe it's the computer. So I pulled the computer out of the van. Now, this is a very primitive uh, computer, um, basically just a box with some, uh, transistors and capacitors and stuff like that in it and a plug that goes into it. So I pulled the computer out, put the computer in the freezer for an hour, plugged it back into the van, really slow, nothing happened. Click, 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 you know, and then it would start to work. Um, I also tried taking the computer and when it was doing this clicking thing on a cold morning, uh, hitting it with a hairdryer and I noticed that that sped it up. So I figured, okay, this thing needs a new computer. Well, good luck finding that. I did end up getting one uh, off the internet refurbished. It was quite expensive. Um, but when I received it, I plugged it in and boom, not having that problem anymore. So I'm glad that I was able to diagnose and fix that. That should definitely help with the reliability of the van. Something that was uh, really important to me in taking the van uh, was that it had good brakes, especially because I'm going across the mountains. And as I started to do the brakes, I realized that it didn't just simply need brakes. It basically needed the whole braking system replaced. All the brake lines had rotted over time. Uh, the brake calipers, it has um, uh, brake rotors on the disc brakes on the front and drum brakes on the rear. Uh, the calipers didn't work properly. They were stuck. I, I don't really even know how they certified this van, to be honest. But nonetheless, I replaced the front rotors, um, pads, calipers, uh, flex lines. Then the hard lines in the body uh, were all rotted. So I had to bend up new hard lines going to the back. The rear distribution block, uh, which basically in this van, you have one line that goes to the back and uh, it's sort of in the middle of the van, there's a, a block that branches out with a flex line that goes down to your, your brakes. I had to replace that, bend up new brake lines for the rear. Um, on the rear, I noticed when I was doing the brakes that the rear axles had a little bit of movement in them. So I did the rear axle bearings. Um, I actually had a shop do that. I put new shoes, uh, new drums, new spring kit, and just made sure that the brakes were working really good. The other thing that I did was I did a complete flush of all the brake fluid. When I looked at the brake fluid, and you're not going to believe this, the brake fluid literally looked like uh, coffee. It, it was just, it was so dark and it even was kind of creamy looking. It was like a, kind of like a dark latte in there. So uh, I bled and bled and bled the brakes. I eventually ended up buying a power bleeder, which pressurizes the system and you can just force liters and liters of brake fluid through it until it comes out clean. So I did that to make sure I have nice, good, fresh brake fluid. Um, all the other fluids seemed fine. And because I had the rear, uh, bearings, the rear wheel bearings changed. They also changed the rear differential fluid while they were doing it. And so that's a good thing. Although 
That being said, I do hear a strange whining noise coming from the rear end. I don't really know if it's normal or not. Um, that is a bit of a concern for me, but I don't think there's really anything I can do about that at this point unless I want to get a new rear end or start taking the rear end apart, which I'm not prepared to do. Something else I noticed was that the actual fan switch on the heater controls would get hot. I've never experienced this before, but apparently Dodge, in their infinite wisdom, ran the power to the fan directly through the switch. So, so if the switch has a bad contact in it, it will cause resistance and cause the switch to heat up, and then eventually the dash will catch on fire. So luckily I noticed that and I was able to order a new switch, which I changed. The other thing was that the headlights are extremely, extremely dim, especially compared to modern vehicles. Again, Dodge runs the full power of the headlights through the headlight switch. So initially I thought, you know, perhaps the switch has a bad contact. I changed the switch. It did not help the problem. I think it's just a function of the age of these vehicles. Back in the early 90s, um, people didn't drive the speeds that they do today because the vehicles just simply didn't have the performance. But I would notice as I was driving at night or in the rain, I'd be doing sort of just the limit. I'd have people passing me, which became a hazard, right? And I'm just driving to the extent of my headlights, but I'm starting to get a little bit concerned because people would just be passing me left and right and, uh, you know, making me feel like they're going to run me off the road. So I changed the headlight switch. That didn't really help. Um, I went on to the internet and I ordered myself two LED uh, bulbs, which improved the headlights greatly. And then I also bought two uh, knockoff lights of what's called a light force, which is like a, a off-road driving light. And I've mounted those to the front of the van as well. And I've wired it up so that I can turn them on and off independently with a switch, or I can put the switch in another position where they will come on and off when I flip on my high beams. So that should be good in case I get caught in the dark. Although I really don't like driving in the dark, especially with a vehicle who is 7,500 pounds and doesn't stop all that great, even with fresh brakes. The air conditioning didn't seem to work particularly well, so I topped it off with one of those kits you can buy at an auto parts store, and it has made it blow cooler, so it must have a leak. I don't know how fast it's leaking, but uh, that seemed to improve the performance of the air conditioning system. I put four new tires on all around because the tires were old and they looked a little bit weather checked. Uh, the mechanic said they're fine, but I didn't feel comfortable with that, especially making such a long drive. So I put some brand new tires and hopefully that's going to make a difference. Um, they're a little bit more aggressive than what the van came with. But the thing is that this van, it doesn't even have a limited slip rear differential. So what that means is only one tire will ever spin. And in fact, I got, <laughs> I got stuck on sand one time and I had to call a tow truck to just pull me off some sand because the van just would not drive. So at this point, I'm thinking, okay, everything is pretty well ready to go. The van is running reliably. So I decided to take a, a rather long drive out to my friend's house, about two and a half, three hours away. So I drove there, no problems at all, parked. I ended up camping uh, the night in the van. The next morning when I went out to start it, I turned the key and just smoke came out from under the hood. The poof just smoke. Nothing happened. The engine, uh, didn't crank. It was the strangest thing. I was like, Oh no. Right. So I popped the hood. I can't see where the smoke is coming from, but, uh, I'm like, okay, well, I, I just, I had to step away from it. 
I came back about an hour later, turned the key, the van started. But my power windows wouldn't roll down. And a couple of the other things, I don't remember what they were in the van, didn't work. So I'm like, okay, a fuse. I checked all the fuses. The fuse looks good. Um, you know, no problem there. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it was just some fluke thing that happened. So I continued driving the van. I drove it home. Um, later I had taken it to a mechanic shop and this is, I was getting, uh, something, something minor done, but at this point I, I didn't want to do any work myself. I, I just took it into a mechanic shop for something simple. They put the van on the hoist and a couple hours later I get a phone call. Uh, we can't start the van. I'm like, um, okay, I don't know. Sometimes you got to fiddle with the ignition, you know, I'm headed out. So I went out, turned the ignition key, fiddled with it. And then again, poof, smoke comes out from under the hood. And it's like, oh my gosh. So the mechanic guy pops the hood and, uh, and now at this point, the van won't crank it. Nothing will happen when you turn the key. Uh, there's no buzzer noise. There's no anything. The van's basically dead. Um, at this point, the mechanic says, okay, it's your fusible links. Now, this is something that I was not aware of. I don't think a lot of people are aware of, but it's something that they did, uh, back in the day on the older vehicles where, um, instead of putting a fuse for whatever reason on certain systems, they would run a piece of wire that is a smaller gauge than the wires that it's connected to. So, um, you know, let's say you have a kind of a medium wire you know, coming in, then it will go small and then, then it'll go back to a medium wire. And the idea of that is that if you were to pull too much power, that little skinny part of the wire would basically blow up or catch fire, but it's inside a, a silicone tube that's supposed to contain that. And, uh, and that basically acts as a fuse to protect the wiring in the vehicle. The problem with that is that when that blows, the two wires that it was, that fusible link was connected to don't have enough room to be directly connected to each other. So I, I guess you would be forced to go to a dealer and get a new fusible link. Well, this mechanic didn't have any fusible links. And this is where I kind of start to question the quality that mechanics do. He found that there were like three or four fusible links that had blown and presumably that's where the smoke came from so he uh <laughs> he basically just cut the ripped the wire he actually just physically ripped them out with his hand didn't mark which wire went where um took the one side of them twisted them all together soldered on uh like an inline fuse and just ran that directly to the battery um, meanwhile i was in the van and I had a suspicion that there was something wrong in the ignition switch because I always sort of had to play with it to get the van started. So I did have a spare ignition switch at home, which I had purchased. I figured, okay, there's something going on in the ignition switch. So while he's doing this and I'm not really watching, I'm replacing the ignition switch inside the van. So, you know, he finishes up his work. I finish up mine, which by the way, they charged me $300 for this fuse fusible link fiasco let's call it um anyway he connects everything up i turn the key boom van starts beautiful so you know i i pull around i pay i'm thinking okay i don't know why this is costing me 300 bucks considering what this guy did but uh anyway they've they've kind of got me by the short and curlies so i, I pay um all right i'm headed out the door i drive down the road about i don't know two kilometers. I turn on the blower for the air conditioning. 
poof, everything dies in the van. The engine dies, everything dies. So I get out, I look at this fuse that he's put in, 30 amp fuse, it's blown. So I'm thinking, okay, what the heck, right? So obviously it happened, something's overloading when I turn on the fan. So I luckily had some replacement fuses. I changed that fuse, I was able to limp it home. When I got home and I started looking in the Haynes repair manual, I noticed that all these fusible links, which I couldn't really identify which is which, but they all had anywhere between 20, 30, 40 amp ratings. So I'm like, okay, you can't just take them all and put them all on a 30 amp fuse. So I went about actually replacing each wire um, with its own separate inline fuse. There wasn't much guidance on um, what the what current these fuses should be because I couldn't really trace what these fusible links uh, were for specifically. But I did um, take some educated guesses based on the size of the wire and I put, uh, you know, new fuses in and I haven't had any problems with that since. So that, that's a great thing. So that pretty much sums up the mechanical work that I had to do on the van. I did make some alterations to the camper portion of it, which I'll just talk about briefly. Uh, one is that the battery box. So on these particular vans, they carry a separate battery, um, they call that the coach battery and that battery powers like the water pump, the interior lights in the camper portion, uh, and a 12 volt socket that I guess you would plug a TV or some kind of 12 volt appliance into. When I went to replace the coach battery to make sure that I had a fresh one, I noticed that the box was just completely rusted out. And part of that is probably because batteries sometimes vent uh, acid and then that acid eats away the metal. So I ended up having to cut that battery box out, get a new one bent up by a local uh, metal fabrication company. And I made it deeper so that I could accommodate uh, two golf cart batteries. And I know just from reading on the forums and I've done this on a previous camper trailer, two six volt golf cart batteries connected in series, which gives you 12 volts, has way more power than simply a single deep cycle battery that the coach would take. So I then replaced the, uh, once I replaced the battery box, I replaced the co original coach battery with two uh, golf cart batteries so that I have a lot more capacity. The the van actually charges the coach batteries while you're driving, or at least it's supposed to, through a device called the battery isolator. And what that does is, while you're driving, it allows the alternator in the van to charge both the van starting battery and also the coach batteries. Uh, in this van, I discovered that that does not work. So I replaced that. I ordered a new one off the internet and I replaced that. So now the charging system should work for the coach batteries while I'm driving uh, and also charging the main van battery, fingers crossed. I did check the voltage with a multimeter and they appear to be charging. So that that's another positive thing. Um, this van actually has three seats. The two front seats are what they call captain's chairs and they can spin 360 degrees. And then it has a third seat in the rear behind the passenger that would be to obviously accommodate a third passenger, but also can kind of convert into a bed when combined with the uh, passenger 
seat captain's chair folded down. Well, I don't need that. That's just taking up more room in the van and I can't do anything with that. So I took that chair out and I built a little table that goes there and it's hinged so that you can open the table up and you can put your essentials in there, things that you need to get to on a regular basis, that sort of thing. And that's that's been working really well. I also went ahead and installed a 2000 watt pure sine wave inverter uh, in one of the kitchen cabinets. Um, that's so that if I want to use a Keurig coffee machine or I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm going to have to go somewhere fancy and use a hairdryer. I doubt it. But uh, that should be able to power those sort of appliances. And I can also use that to charge my laptop and my electronics and anything else that would require 120 when I don't have a connection to shore power. And the last thing I did was I wired up and uh, installed a VHF UHF ham radio. Uh, I am a licensed ham radio operator under Industry Canada. And I thought that especially when I'm going through the mountains or if I'm going down logging roads, it might be important to have access um, to something besides a traditional, you know, cell phone type communication device. Um, I've tested it out. I've contacted the local repeater, spoke to people at the local club. So I'm pretty confident that my install was good there um, that I'm able to switch on and off so it's not killing my battery all the time it does have a bit of parasitic drain and uh, I'm really glad that I installed that I think that's going to come in really handy oh yeah and finally the last thing is I put a rear cargo carrier in the trailer hitch uh, receiver and on that cargo carrier, I've bolted a steel box, which I bought uh, from a hardware store. And in that box, I actually have room for a small uh, 2000 watt inverter generator, uh, my sewer hoses, stuff like that, stuff I don't really want inside the van, and also a five gallon jerry can of gas. So that might come in handy. I don't know how prevalent the gas stations are when you get into some of these remote areas, but I wanna make sure that if I am in a situation where I start to run out of gas, I do have some spare on hand. Well, that pretty well wraps up uh, the repairs and the modifications that I've done to the van. I'm feeling very confident in uh, its drivability and quality. So all there really is left to do is pack my clothes, put some tools in, get some food for the fridge, and uh, get ready to hit the road. I'm taking a look at the maps, and I think I am going to start out on the southern route uh, in Ontario that runs along Lake Superior. Uh, there seems to be a few more towns along that way in case I run into any problems. I think that's going to be better. And certainly if I break down or I need parts, uh, I'm going to need to go to uh, some kind of parts store or local shop. The northern route through Ontario takes you, and I just, I know this because I've traveled up there for fishing. It takes you through vast expanses of wilderness. I can remember getting to one spot where there was like a gas station that said like no gas 250 kilometers this way no gas 300 something that way fill up now sort of thing so i think it's going to be a good idea at least in the beginning to take the southern route in case i run into any problems all righty so uh, i'm going to get all my stuff together here and you'll be hearing from me shortly when i head out if you enjoy listening to the podcast, I would ask that you like, subscribe, and hit the notification icon on whatever platform you're listening to. And I'd also like to remind you all to be kind to one another and keep on road trekking. Talk to you soon. Bye.
Mm-hmm.